turn with me back to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we will conclude chapter 3 this morning. And I have uh, been incredibly challenged as I've studied through this, this uh, well, the first three chapters, and particularly the letters addressed to the seven churches. And so we'll, we'll conclude that this morning. We covered the last two weeks, our first two points. Um, number one, which was an introduction from the faithful and true witness, verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And we talked about the fact that Christ is the very expression of truth. He is the binding fulfillment. We use the term amen to solidify, to um, to bind ourselves to God's word. And he is introduced as the amen of all of God's promises. And he has obligated his church in Smyrna as he has us to be faithful and true witnesses and the church in, excuse me, Laodicea. And they were failing miserably at this. And we talked about the fact that in every one of these introductions to the seven churches, we find the antidote, if you will, to the church's current spiritual conundrum. In this case, the church in Laodicea was not being effective in their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the faithful and true witness. And then we looked last week at, at the hard part, the rebuke, verses 15 through 18. And it is a warning to us to understand the dangers of self-deception and that we as believers are not above thinking wrongly about ourselves, the necessity of our accountability to each other, and of course, the word of God, to consider our blindness. And Jesus counsels the church in Laodicea to go to the marketplace of the soul to do business with Christ. It's a very interesting statement that he makes. He said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see all of which can't be purchased from Christ. So he tells them to do what they cannot do, which is the point. Their independence from Christ, their bootstrap Christianity, if you will, their go it alone their strong, resilient individualism had led them to a point where they said, you know what? I don't need Christ. I have all, of, all that I need. I'm rich, I've prospered, and I don't need anything. And Jesus reminds them that what they need can't be bought with their ample resources. And he encourages them to cast themselves on his unmeasured generosity. So that brings us to point three, which is our last one this morning. Verses 19 through 22, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I, I mentioned as we started a couple of weeks ago on this particular letter, there's very little good news in this letter for the church in Laodicea, but here's where it is. To those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Well, it brings up a logical question. Who are those whom I love? It's an important question for us to ask. Does Christ discipline everyone? Some of you are engaging already. Good. Good. You're awake. The coffee's kicked in. I uh, mentioned this morning, and it's amazing to me how the Spirit of God superintends what we teach and preach and how they overlap. And we had a case study this morning on the discipline of the Lord, and it is going to tie directly in. And Daniel and I did not coordinate, so that tells you someone else did. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. And we looked at this last week when we came to the Lord's table. 
but I want you to I want you to hear this again because we read things frequently and we don't hear them sometimes, right? And we need to reread them. We need to rehear them. First Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So here is the warning. We talk about this frequently when we come to the Lord's table. But how seriously do we take it? We looked at the sin of David for counting and doing a poll for the nation of Israel. And what did that cost the nation? Over 70,000 men. And we can go back and look at um, the striking down of the young man who grabbed the Ark of the Covenant to steady it. And we come away from these passages sometimes thinking that that God is harsh. When in reality, what we should do is come away from passages like that with an understanding that God is holy. And he does not. He will not negotiate away his holiness. So when we come to the Lord's table, we always must do it. It's a, it's a time of celebration, but you've heard, heard me say before, it's a time of somber celebration. But the warning from Paul is, is that verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning or valuing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is a warning for unbelievers coming to the Lord's table. There's nothing we can do to merit or earn a place at the Lord's table. It's not what Paul is saying. But for those who come to the Lord's table presumptuously, he says, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is they were not treating the Lord's Supper reverently or with respect, were they? Because he opens up that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 dealing with their sin and how they come to the Lord's table in sin. They were um, mistreating each other at the Lord's table. So he goes on to say, but if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, listen to this. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. And the word in the Greek means trained as a child. Pateometha is the Greek. We are educated or trained as a child so that we may not be condemned with who? The world. So immediately, the good news for the church in Laodicea is there were were some there whom the Lord loved and therefore would discipline. That's good news. The biblical concept of discipline is really a death blow to what has become increasingly popular in our culture, which is the idea of universalism. In other words, that we are, and you've heard this before, we're all God's children. Is that true? Now, we're all made in the image of God. We have that in common as humanity, but are we all God's children? Universalism teaches that it's impossible for a loving God to elect only a portion of humankind to salvation and then do the rest to eternal punishment. And they insist that punishment in the afterlife is for a limited period of time during which the soul was purified and prepared for eternity in the presence of God. I'm not preaching on universalism this morning and the fallacies of it, but my point is, is this is what is out there in our culture that we're hearing reverberations from. And there's a certain appeal to say that if we're all God's children, therefore, we're all going to be saved. But what does that do? What does that do to the atonement? We've just finished up our, yeah, absolutely. We've just finished up our study on the atonement and the importance of it and what actually occurred Ephesians 6, 4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, we have lots of children in here. But the command from Paul, both in Ephesians and Colossians, is that fathers, you're not to provoke whose children? Yours. What does the word your mean? It means belonging to you. That's what yours mean. Implicit in this command that Paul gives in both Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3, 21 is your children. It doesn't say for me, Danny, not to provoke Jesse's children or Jesse to provoke, not provoke my children. Don't do it, though. But it says your children. And how do we provoke our children? Are children ever frustrated with us as parents? This is a rhetorical question. Do not nod your head. We frustrate our children because we are inconsistent as parents sometimes, aren't we? Kids, if you haven't figured it out, mom and dad are sinners. And we don't always parent well. And this can frustrate you. Paul warns us, don't frustrate or provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The point is this, is your children are uniquely yours, right? Some of our children look like us, and we hold out hopes that we can marry them off, but it's, it's, it's on the edge, right? There is a distinctiveness and a uniqueness about children, and Scripture uses this as the analogy to help us understand the concept of discipline. And Jesus Dealing with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 31 through 47. I'll not read all of it, but they they challenged him on who he was. And their claim was, we're offspring of Abraham. Who are you? Jesus said, I am the son. And if you loved the father, you would hear me. And Jesus tells them, he doesn't pull any punches with them. You are of who? Your father, the devil. Wait a minute. Wait, you're not my children? You belong to your father, the devil. The picture of children and parents is a picture of uniqueness. And when we started this letter, I said the one ray of hope here is found in this painful nugget. If you are or have been under discipline, you are a child of God and you are loved. Take heart in that. One of the greatest proofs that we belong to God is that he loves us uniquely with discipline. What's the comparison? Well, we just read it in 1 Corinthians 11. With the child of God, there is discipline. With the world, there is a guilty verdict. There is a condemnation. So what does that look like? Scripture gives us, I think, a perfect illustration And then I want to give you some principles that that scripture gives us regarding regarding what this discipline looks like and how it applies to us. So the illustration, first of all, and it uses the word in the Greek to parent, to train your child, to educate your child. And so the illustration is this parenting. We happen to have lots of kids with us and there is no greater joy than being a parent. No greater challenge, maybe, than being a parent. And as parents, we are the recipients of gray hair. And we can only speculate how we got said gray hair. But I remember, and I know you do, the first child you had, your oldest. Remember your state of mind before that child arrived? We're going to be the best parents Mm -hmm. ever. Remember saying it? Maybe not out loud. Maybe you weren't that foolish. You remember thinking it? We will let no germ assail their pristinely clean bodies. There will be no food that will enter their mouths that is not approaching angels' food, manna. They will be the best behaved children ever because we will be awesome parents. And then the Lord sends that child. And I remember, and I'll pick on him because he's not here, but after we had Cameron, um, 
we had this Sunday morning habit of on our way to church, we had our act together, right? We left early enough that we had time to stop for breakfast. And we thought we'd start this little weekly habit of going to Cracker Barrel for breakfast on our way to church. And I think it lasted not very long. Cameron was awful. I mean, just you couldn't. The looks. You, you couldn't eat in peace. The man was, the boy was miserable. Yes. He was absolutely horrible. And I know nobody would believe that now. But it was amazing to me how the Lord humbled us with him. And immediately, now, when the second child comes, they're eating dirt in the backyard, un, unwatched, unobserved, right? By the time number two gets around, Maddie, unsupervised, unsupervised in the backyard eating dirt. Um, Joel Beakey in his book, Parenting by God's Promises, says this, that um, we are to model Christ in his threefold office of parents. And if this isn't convicting as parents, then nothing is. But what is the threefold office of Christ? He is prophet, priest, and king. And how do we model that for our children? Well, as prophet, we must be confessing Christ before them. We must be exhibiting Christ before them. Um, actively teaching them with continuity as they grow about the things of God, the essence of which is the gospel. And this is done first and foremost in the home for us as mom and dad. It's our primary role. And then it flows into every area of our lives or their lives. But the role of a prophet is to declare the truth. We have to do this for our children, but we must also be or demonstrate the priestly role, which is we intercede for them. And I, I read, I was actually listening to him preaching on how he laid out this book and he uses the illustration. Um, he was one of five and the Lord converted all of them as young children. And what a blessing that is. And he said he and his brother, his older brother's first memory, the first thing he remembered of his childhood is seeing his father pray with tears and he said, quote, Lord, we cannot miss any of our children at the right hand of Jesus Christ on the great day. That's what he heard his father praying right in front of him. And he said his brother remembered it wasn't just the words that his father prayed, but his father prayed with tears. Our children need to hear us loving their souls enough to earnestly ask God for their conversion. They need to hear that. We pray that in our home frequently. We're to model Christ as king, meaning we are to fight against sin and Satan on their behalf and in front of them. Modeling the gospel again, helping our children discern God's will, defending them from those who would do them harm, dis disciplining them to root out evil and promote what is good. We offer them wise and biblical counsel for this life and the next. And guess what? We fail miserably at this as parents, don't we? As God sanctifies and teaches us and we grow and mature as parents, by his grace, we get better at loving our kids. But it is no wonder that our children are frustrated with us sometimes. Here is the analogy that God uses regarding discipline. And then the scripture gives us some principles that I'm hoping will encourage us this morning. First of all, what is discipline? What is discipline? You say, well, why do we need to define it? We all kind of know what it means, right? But for a lot of us growing up, it looked differently. Um, we may have had parents who were harsh disciplinarians. Um, I remember frequently being disciplined, though not nearly as much as some of my older siblings. Um, I like to think I learned from their mistakes, but probably didn't very well. Um, but what is real godly discipline? 
look like? What does biblical discipline look like? Here is my working definition for what it's worth. This is homemade. It's, quote, the loving work of the Heavenly Father to bring his children into alignment with his word and his providential hand of affliction so that our awareness of this affliction will bring us under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, work repentance in us, and drive us to Christ. That is what discipline is supposed to be. The loving work of the Heavenly Father to bring us, his children, into alignment with his word and his providential hand of affliction so that our awareness of this affliction will bring us under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, work repentance in us, and drive us to Christ. So the first question that comes to mind as I think about this is, well, how do I know I'm being disciplined? How do I know I'm being disciplined? Well, whenever I was disciplined, which of course was not frequently, but I remember it well, dad had in his study this picture on the wall. And there was no... um, rush about corporal punishment in our home he would make us go search for the paddle in the house because it would vanish magically nobody knew where the paddle went so he would make us go find it and i think that was to give him a cooling off period so that he did not discipline in anger because guess what as parents it's easy to discipline in anger isn't it that's bad by the way but in his study there was this picture of a ship on troubled waters and I'll never forget it because he would say, son, look at that. Look at that picture. (laughs) And then put both hands on the desk and don't move. Don't resist. Because if you resisted, it did not go well. It only prolonged the discipline, which made it very, very, very more painful. And so my point of saying that is this, when, when God disciplines us, he arrests us say, how do I know I'm being disciplined? He makes sure that we know that we are being disciplined. Think of a couple of examples. Um, we, we looked at the case study this morning with David. Did David know he was being disciplined? Yes, God says, I'm giving you three options. The belt, the, uh, what was the, the twig? What do we call that? The, the switch, the belt, the switch, or... No PlayStation for a week. Right. None of which were appealing options. But did David know that he was about to be disciplined? Of course he did. God is gracious enough to tell us and to show us that we are being disciplined. Think of how God has arrested. And there's many, many examples in scripture. We looked at one this morning. But David, with the sin that he committed against Bathsheba, Who came to him? Nathan, the prophet. What did Nathan do? You are the man. He arrested him. Think about um, Jonah. What was Jonah arrested by? And don't say the whale. He was arrested by the fish. Did the Lord, did the Lord arrest Jonah? Yes. How about Peter after he denied the Lord? What did the Lord use to arrest Peter? A rooster. In our case study this morning in 2 Samuel 24, what did did God use to arrest David? Remember? It says very specifically in that passage, what happened? Well, he used Gad, but even before Gad, When David had finished numbering the people, mm, what wasn't said in that passage, but directly implied is the spirit of God convicted David of his sin. And the Lord uses our conscience. And it's incredibly important that we have a biblically informed conscience. But but mark this down in terms of God's discipline is he is going to make us aware that he is disciplined disciplining us. We don't happen to wander through discipline and not know it's taking place. He is loving enough to teach us with that. 
Do you wander through disciplining your children so that they have no idea why they're being disciplined? I hope it's not because they just think that mom or dad is angry. There's a purpose for discipline. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the Lord uses many things, many providences, our conscience to arrest our attention, but he always brings us back to his word because he's going in discipline to teach us. That is the purpose. The purpose of discipline is not to condemn us. It is to teach us. Providential circumstances will lead us to repentance so that we can have that aha moment when we look back on our lives and say, well, what happened before I repented? Well, this is what happened. And we can trace the Lord's hand to how he disciplined us. But when the spirit convicts us, he puts the hammer on the head of the nail. That's what he does. Holy Spirit is specific. And the hammer being the word, the nail being us. He brings his word to bear in exactly the appropriate spots. That is because the Holy Spirit knows where our sin is hiding, doesn't he? Unlike Satan, who will broadly accuse us. The scripture says Satan is the accuser of the brother. And what will Satan come to you and say? He'll throw those fiery darts and he'll say, you're not worth sacrifice of Christ. Or you're cursed. He'll throw these broad generalizations. But when the spirit of God convicts us, it will lay bare that sin that is out of sight, that's hidden. So here are the principles that I want to share with you this morning. First of all, discipline. Number one, discipline is normative. What do I mean by that? For the believer, it should be expected and understood as normal. Not a once in a lifetime occurrence. Okay. Proverbs 3, 11 through 13, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I would ask every one of you as a child, did you ever make it through your childhood never having been disciplined? I mean, you just skirted right through. Some of you had to, you know go right to go collect 200. No. Some of us require more discipline than others. That's true. But don't be weary of his reproof. Why? Because it happens frequently. We sin regularly and must be corrected consistently. And guess what? If God is our heavenly father and we belong to him, he is not going to let us continue to sin with reckless abandon. He won't do it. And praise him for that. Thank him for that. If we have ever fallen into sin, and we can look back on our lives and see times in which this perfectly applies to us, if we have ever fallen into sin, if you are his child, he will not leave you there because he loves you. He is not content to leave you into a point where you are condemned with the rest of the world. He will arrest you and he will make known your sin and convict you of it and draw you to a place of repentance. And for some, it is way more painful than others. Why do we need to be disciplined frequently? Because we sin frequently. One of my favorite pastors said something I'll never forget. He said, the Christian life is a life of constant repentance and renewal. It is part of the Christian experience to repent and be renewed regularly. It's normative or normal. Why? Because God is accomplishing something with it. Number two, discipline is expansive. By that, I mean this. It is for the greatest of saints to the least of saints. Second Samuel 7, 4, 14, I will be to him, this is David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
first of all, God says when he, David, commits iniquity, I will discipline him. He doesn't say if. But remember, David is a man after God's own heart. If anybody would get a pass from God's discipline, we might think it would be David. But God says in advance, I will be a father to him and he is a son to me. Therefore, when he sins, I will discipline him. I will bring the rod. We looked at a a horrific picture this morning of God bringing the rod to David's life. And it cost 70,000 lives because David's sin in the position that he was in impacted the entire nation, didn't it? What example was David giving to the nation of Israel by numbering the people? Your strength is in your numbers, not in trusting God. That is a formula for defeat in every battle that they would encounter. Discipline is expansive. There is not one believer or saint that has escaped the disciplining hand of God. Think about the Apostle Paul, incredibly used by God. And what did God do for Paul? He sent him a messenger to buffet him. Why? Why would he do that? Why would Paul become exceedingly arrogant? God used Paul to write most of the New Testament. If anybody could get a big head, be Paul. But Paul was not above being disciplined. My point to say that is if God will discipline the mighty saints of Scripture that we tend to lift up on a pedestal, will he discipline you and I? Yes. Third, discipline is purposeful. It has a desired end, which is our growth and maturity. And this is incredibly important for us to understand in terms of parenting. Is the purpose of our discipline to be punitive or corrective? There's a difference. God always disciplines with purpose. In Colossians 1.28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word warning there is the word nuthetuntes. That's not how you pronounce it. I had it right, I promise. It's from the word nuthetic that we get in the Greek, and it is the basis of um, the term that Jay Adams coined, nuthetic confrontation. He wrote a book in 1970. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic, called Confident the counsel, the principle behind Christian counseling being that we confront ourselves and each other with God's word. You say, well, confronting, isn't that, isn't that a little harsh? Was Jesus harsh with the church in Laodicea or was he loving? You are neither cold nor hot. I will spew you. I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's so harsh. Is it harsh or is it loving? Or is it both? It's both. It's what we call in our genre, tough love. Thank you. Yes, it's tough love. It is confronting ourselves ourselves with God's word. And he does this, by the way, with the preaching of, of the word of God. Primarily, one of the primary means of God disciplining us. And if we have sensitive consciences, biblically informed consciences, when we hear God's word taught and preached, and, and the alarm bell goes off, what do we do? Well, when we become aware of our sin, if our heart is tender and we are obedient, the first thing we should do is what? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes we're stubborn, aren't we? That's not sin. I have every reason to hold that grudge. They did this, and I will not forgive them until they repent in sackcloth and ashes. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
while we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What is Paul telling us here? Our light affliction, and it, it may not feel light when we're afflicted, but compared to what we read in 1 Corinthians 11, would you rather be disciplined or condemned? Because in light of condemnation, discipline is light. He says, but our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What is God doing with discipline? God has the long view in mind. And as we take it back to our original comparison as parents, we should discipline with the long view in mind. We're concerned not about making good citizens, although that's good, right? We don't want to raise kids that end up in jail. That's embarrassing. We should do our best to avoid that. But what are we really concerned about? Are we concerned with making good citizens? No, I'm concerned about my children's souls. I have their eternal destination in mind as a parent. And God does with us as well. He is concerned about our long-term growth and discipline. It has an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Fourth, discipline is by design uncomfortable. You'd say, well, thanks, Captain Obvious. Discipline is by design uncomfortable. I want you to notice this. When God reveals to you that he is disciplining you and he brings you through it and he brings you to a state of repentance, there is nothing like that understanding of his divine love on your life and knowing that he is your heavenly father and that he has spanked you. There's nothing like that. You will walk away from that experience incredibly grateful and spiritually refreshed, say, well, that doesn't sound good. I'm telling you, as a Christian who has experienced this, it is absolutely true. It's for the moment uncomfortable. But here's the thing. Here's what it will bear out. When God brings the chastening rod to your life and you submit to it, you know what it says about who you are? I am his son. Absolutely. I am a child of God because I am submitting to his discipline. Because what happens when you don't submit to it? Where's my assurance of salvation? I rebel against him and I push away his discipline and I stiffen my back. What does that tell you about my spiritual state? How do I have any assurance that I belong to him? If we are God's children, we will endure his discipline. We will. We looked at that passage in the epistle of John. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. So what is implied in that statement? Here's someone that has sinned in the church. What happens when a biblical church is confronted with sin? What should happen? Well, here in America, we don't do that anymore because that's confrontational. What do we do? God has called us to bring discipline to bear for open sin. Well, what happens? There's going to be two results or one of two results when, when church discipline is brought to bear. You, in a spirit of meekness, are to restore the fallen one. That's the purpose of church discipline, to restore that fallen or brother or sister into fellowship. But what happens if that person is not a believer and you bring church, church discipline? I don't have to take this. Who do you think you are? I'm out of here. There's an implication in John's warning that they went out from us because they were not of us. Because when church discipline is brought to bear, and it must be, because if we don't bring church discipline, what are we telling each other? 
I don't love you. I don't care about your soul. One of the hardest things to do as a parent is to discipline your child. I, I remember my dad telling me, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. I, and I would think in my mind, that's impossible. But now I know. Now I know. That it did, did hurt him more than it hurt me. It grieved him. My sin grieved my father. It hurt him. And so when he had to discipline me, and I thought, man, that hurt. That spanking, mm, he wouldn't have done it if he hadn't have loved me. And every time, every time he disciplined us, he would pray with us. And it was so tempting, and I know it as a parent now. I know it. It is so easy to get angry. My child will not listen to me, and I have raised my voice to four different levels of decibels, and they still won't listen. And I want to bring discipline and frustration. And my father was a sinful man. He was a sinner saved by grace. But what he taught me in discipline was, as painful as it was, after the discipline took place, he would pray with us. And we would talk about God's grace and the forgiveness of our sin. And then we forget about it, right? After that discipline took place, the clouds parted. He wasn't upset anymore. Discipline is by design uncomfortable. Church discipline will never be comfortable. If we're comfortable as a church exercising church discipline, we need to be doing something else. Hebrews chapter 12, or let me read Proverbs 9, 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, but reprove a wise man and he will love you. The net result for the child of God under discipline is their love for God after discipline is heightened. Our gratefulness for God's love on our lives as we realize that we are adopted sons is heightened. It's elevated. And our relationship with God deepened because of his discipline. Hebrews 12. Couldn't talk about discipline with not, without getting to this text. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation, that's Proverbs 3.11 that we just read, that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Think about what he's saying here. Our fathers who are sinful, our parents, as they disciplined us, did their best to discipline us. God's discipline is not God doing his best. God's discipline is brought to bear on the Christian's life with perfect wisdom. Perfect discipline. He gives us exactly what we need. If we ever, as parents, miss the mark with discipline, not enough or too much. I mean, we, we flip-flop back and forth, don't we? You don't want to know why our kids are frustrated with this inconsistency. Wait, I got in trouble for this, but I didn't get in trouble for my sibling over here got away with this. But what is, what is, the writer of Hebrews saying, God's 
discipline is perfect. And he said, even your father, your human father, you respected. Should we not respect our heavenly father? All the more. For the moment, verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, there's the understatement of the year, right? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen to this. It is not whether or not we sin that will define us as a Christian. It is whether or not we will submit to the rod that defines us as a child of God. Mark that down. We will wrestle with sin until either Christ comes back and we are transformed into our glorified versions of who we will be or we die and then we're in glory with him. That's when our wrestle with sin will cease. But until then, it doesn't matter how many gray hairs we get, the fight's not over. It continues and new battles pop up. Number five, I want you to, we need to understand this. Our tears, remember that. Discipline doesn't harm us. Discipline doesn't harm us. Our kids would say, "Uh -uh, that's not true. Discipline's intent is not to harm. I didn't say discipline doesn't hurt. I said discipline doesn't harm. Godly discipline does not harm. What do I mean by that? It won't shipwreck us spiritually. God's loving discipline for the life of the believer will not shipwreck us spiritually. There's an example, and Calvin comments on this in Isaiah 27, 9, when it says this, Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. And some have looked at that to say, well, this is an example of where um, discipline might expiate our sin. Not true. Calvin says the term expiated to give satisfaction for sin is used in reference to chastisement. Therefore, in this manner shall the iniquity of Jacob be expiated if we do, as is here implied, satisfy God for our sins through punishment then our theology concerning Christ's satisfaction is indeed altered. Bear with me here. But this is not what is meant here or in any passage dealing with discipline. God's discipline does not cover our sins. Think about this. God's discipline does not cover our sins for only Christ's righteousness can do that. Rather, it is a way God roots out the sin in our lives. By making us suffer and convicting us by the Holy Spirit, God brings us to an acknowledgement of our sins. In no way does discipline bring satisfaction. In no way does discipline bring satisfaction, meaning satisfaction for our sins, but it does prepare us for repentance. As Calvin says, quote, chastisement chastisements expiate our offenses indirectly, but not directly because they lead us to repentance, which again, in turn, brings us to obtain the forgiveness of sins. All that to say that God's design for discipline is to lead us to repentance so that we will fall on our face before him. And this is the, this is the appeal to the church in Laodicea. This is the counsel that God gives to the church in Laodicea, fall on your face and admit to me that you are blind, that you are naked, that you are absolutely destitute because when you repent, there is forgiveness there. In this letter to the church in Laodicea, and and we're just about done, I promise, there is a model of loving discipline. The hard truth is followed by loving counsel to this church. We have the model here shown to us, and then we have the primary means, God's word. God directly warns his church. 
Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready. And it's, there's a semicolon here. It's not a finished statement. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. The word reprove there in the Greek means to expose guilt and admonish. Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What, what Paul is saying to Timothy is this is the ministry of the word. This is what it does for us. This is not the preacher standing in the pulpit and picking on a specific sin that he may think one of the church members is doing. No, this is the Holy Spirit applying God's word to the heart of the believer and convicting, bringing about conviction. But Paul says, for you, Timothy, preach the word. That's our responsibility when we stand in the pulpit. Be faithful to the word. Listen to verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They went out up from us. Why? They were not of us. He says, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. What preaching is that? It's preaching that doesn't prick the conscience. It is preaching that doesn't pierce the heart. It is softening the blow of the hammer on the nail. Why, why do people listen to that kind of preaching? Why do they submit to that kind of preaching? Because they don't want to be convicted. But guess what? That's not the mark of the believer. We don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Verse four, and, and we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All right, verse 20, we're almost done. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This verse, historically, if you've heard messages preached on this passage, is viewed as evangelistic. You heard it explained that way? What is the picture here? Well, Jesus stops wringing his hands long enough to knock because he can't get admission into your heart because you will not make a decision to open the door. No. This is not a faux namby-pamby evangelical appeal. The context of this passage This statement by Jesus is in direct context with his discipline of his church. And the word knocking on the door in the Greek means to beat with a stick. This is not a, I'm out here. Will you open? I want to have lunch with you. No. I'm coming. I'm about to bust your door down. Wake up. Say, well, Danny, that hurt a little. No, I'm just kidding. Is that a little extreme? Well, let's interpret scripture with scripture here. How about we do that? Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Listen to this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may, listen, open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants. Wait a minute. He's talking about blessed servants, not prospective servants. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. And he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. What is he talking about here? He's at the door. What is he talking about here? He's coming back soon. And he's telling his church to be ready, to be awake. What is the problem with the church in Laodicea? They fell asleep at the wheel. They were groggy like some of you look this morning. 
If he comes in his second watch or the third and finds him awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know why Jesus has not told us when he's coming back? Let me put it this way. The just shall live by a date. No, the just shall live by faith. It is enough for us to know that he is coming back. Do we have faith? Do we believe him? Is his promise real to us? If it is, how will that be demonstrated in our lives? Do you believe Jesus is coming back? No amens. You guys all asleep. Does anyone in this church believe Jesus is coming back? Thank you. Yes. And if he is, and if he is going to do what he says he is going to do, what does that mean for us? Well, how do we live? James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And this is a direct context. Again, be patient, therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8 of James chapter 5, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is what? Someday down the road. No. Coming of the Lord is at hand. Listen to this. Do not grumble against one another, meaning our understanding of Christ's imminent return affects how I love my brother. Did you catch that? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing where? At the door. James directly relates this analogy of being at the door, knocking to the Lord's soon return, just like the Lord does in Luke. This is not an evangelical appeal. This is not, let me in. This is to the church. This is to the the people that are respecting or expecting his imminent return. And then I want you to see this. Here again is the promise of his intimate fellowship. And we see this in every letter. This promise that God gives. He says, for those who hear the knock, I will come in and fellowship with them. Let me ask you this. Who hears the knock? Do you believe he's knocking at the door? If you believe that, And guess what? You hear it. You're ready. You're expecting it. His promise to you then is I will come in and fellowship with you. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, we're a few chapters away from Revelation 20, which is probably the linchpin of Um, everything that is controversial about the book of Revelation. In in Revelation 20, it directly deals with the millennial reign of Christ. And we'll dig into that deeply. I promise you, as we go through this, you will walk away from our study in the book of Revelation with an understanding of the various positions and why you should not hold them. Just kidding. No, hopefully, by the grace of God, we will see his word explained and revealed to our minds so that we we have a biblically held position. But I want you to understand Paul's position with this, okay? The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. When did Jesus conquer? When did he conquer? Because he has. He did. When the most significant event in history was at the cross and then his resurrection where he conquered death and hell. Christ has already conquered. And how do we know he conquered? We know that the father accepted his sacrifice because why? What is the proof that the father accepted his sacrifice? The scripture says, where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. On the throne, Jesus is ruling now. And what 
what he is promising to the conquering church is you will rule with me now. Now, that has future implications for sure. But I want you to, I, I just want to give you this one thought. We'll, we'll come back to this as we get further in our study in the book of Revelation. But go to Ephesians 1. And I promise this is our last reference. Chile is calling. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love to all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. His prayer for the church in Ephesus is, I want you to see what I see. That's what he's praying. Having, verse 18, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Listen, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When did Christ conquer? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now, fast forward down to two. Now, he's continuing his thought, but for time purposes, let's go down to verse two of chapter two. What did Christ do? Or what did, what did the father do for the son? He resurrected him and seated him at his right hand. Verse 2 of Ephesians 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Listen to this, verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We tend to stop there, but listen to what else he says. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where do you think Paul thinks we are now? Where do you think Paul thinks Christ is now? He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And where are we? If we have been risen with Christ, what is that? What, what is that specifically, though? What doctrine are we talking about there? Jesus said it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, for you to see and enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you have been raised with him, made alive together with Christ, you are already seated in heavenly places with Christ and the Father. So then in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've heard me say this again and again. This is what it comes down to, church. You must be born again. The constant refrain that Jesus gives as these letters are read in the, the ears of the hearers in these literal seven churches in Asia Minor. He that has an ear to hear. Well, who has an ear to hear? Yes. Matthew 13, 16. Jesus says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You must be born again. There is no hearing. There is no seeing. There is no obeying. We are under the condemnation of the righteous, holy God if we have never been born again. That is our precarious state. But believer, if you hear, if you see, blessed are your eyes. Thank the Lord for that this morning. You don't have to give me an amen, but say it inside of yourself. Thank the Lord for giving me eyes to see him, ears to hear him, 
I hope our study through the letters to the seven churches has been in, an encouragement to you and a challenge to you as it has been for me. These were written to seven literal first century churches in Asia. But the takeaway for me as I think about this is that these churches face the exact same challenges that we do right now in our current context. And we have what they have. We have a conquering Christ who walks with us, remember, in the midst of the golden candlesticks. We have a Christ who is challenging us. We have a Christ who is refining us. We have a Christ who is protecting us and purifying us and is faithful to complete his work in the bride. And he will present her, us, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish that she might be holy and without blemish before him. That is the message to the church. He is going to finish his work. And if you belong to him, he's going to finish what he started in you and I. And we can take great comfort in that for all of our failings, for all of our sin. He is going to finish his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us enough to discipline us and to bring the rod to bear against our sin. Help us to see, Lord, that you hate sin. You despise it. You will not compromise with it, and neither should we. Help us to see your gracious hand in bringing discipline to bear in our lives. Help us to see it. Help us to love it. Help us to be grateful for it. And Father, we pray that in the middle of your discipline and your teaching in our lives, that you will teach us to love you all the more, that our relationship with you would be deeper and sweeter because we know we belong to you without any doubt, despite the accusations of the wicked one. I ask that as we Think about your word and what you have done for us, that you would apply it to our lives through the power of your spirit, that you will convict us of the sin that we have not confessed and repented of to you, and that you will complete your work in us this morning. Thank you for this time. In your name we pray.